It was a big week. The speech is over. Impeachment is over. Iowa, somehow, incredibly, is not over. It may never be over. And Nancy Pelosi, the media's new master politician, the smartest woman in the world who took Hillary Clinton's place on that, that score, uh, her party seems to be in disarray. Well, those are big stories for This Week in Common Sense for the first week of February 2020. Now, I am not Paul Jacob. I'm Timothy Verkulon, but I'm going to try to cut myself out of most of this. And Paul just talked about the big stories of the week that took in the place in the middle of the week. And, uh, but he began with discussion of Britain. Do you want to start with the big stories or are you going to go back to Britain? Well, I think we'll, we'll get to all of that, but maybe, uh, maybe Britain first, because uh, although the first of the week we talked about Brexit because last week Brexit really got uh, finalized. Uh, Nigel Farage had a, a very strong speech to the European unit, Union stating their case and so on. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of how it started. Um, and as we pointed out on Monday, you have to kind of see where is Britain going to go. Uh, Brexit could be a great thing, uh, or it could be kind of a rotten thing if if Britain decides it wants to be protectionist, uh, Britain decides it wants to tie up its economy with all kinds of socialistic controls and systems and incentives. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we pointed out Britain really led the way uh, in free trade and made itself very, very wealthy in the process. Uh, not signing off on any of uh, Britain's colo you know, colonial uh, activities, uh, you know, some of those revolutions, uh, particularly one across the pond was uh, really, we, I think, we think, I think, I'm gonna put words in your mouth, Tim, uh, was one of the greatest things that ever happened. So, uh, but, but, by the end of the week, I witnessed on one program, and I'm gonna, I can't remember what it, which one it was right off the bat, but they got to discussing uh, Brexit and Britain and just the implosion of the Labor Party. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, and his complete and utter disaster of a, of a campaign. And one, uh, a columnist had written a piece about uh, Britain and comparing it to what's happening with the Democratic Party going so far to the left. Um, and, and you know, Trump uh, seemed to be incredibly vulnerable with over 50% negative, 60% at one point during the campaign in 2006 against Hillary Clinton. Well, she had big negatives. That's why he was able to somehow eke out a win you know, picking up three states that in the Rust Belt that Republicans just don't ever pick up. And, uh, and now, of course, uh, it looks like, well, with those big negatives, with impeachment and Russiagate and just, you know, the, the whole uh, saga that has been the Trump administration, uh, still with very high negatives, uh, low approval ratings, then the Democrats have their pick and they're going to whoop him. Uh, come November 2020. And yet, uh, it sure seems to be 
a the, the, the one one person was arguing no uh we, you know the u.s isn't like britain here uh and argued that that the u.s is probably more following what's happening in in mexico uh i think the u.s is a lot like britain and and the more this guy was saying the the opposite the more i thought uh you know that i think that is uh certainly a, a very plausible way to look at how our election is shaping up. And obviously, you know, people can always change what they're doing, what they're saying. Uh, events can change. And, uh, and, and so, you know, to predict that, oh, we're going to be just like Britain, that doesn't make it happen. Um, but I certainly think that the, 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 the steps that are being taken, the way that the, that the Democratic Party has moved to the left under, under you know, Trump's time in the White House is, is, uh, has, has created a situation where I think he's the odds-on favorite to win re-election. And I just have, I, I, I never thought he would win. I always thought it was possible because of the way, you know, because of the fact that, that the country's been crying for an anti-establishment candidate. And he seemed to become that and got a narrow path to victory. Uh, but then after he was elected, I never thought this guy's going to get reelected. Uh, and I still think it's, you know, certainly a, a close call. But increasingly, it looks like he may be reelected. And the reason will be in the same way as the United Kingdom, that, uh, that the Labor Party or here the Democratic Party moves so far to the left that the American people say, look, the economic times are good. We're not a fan, at least a lot of us aren't a fan of, of Mr. Trump and, and his, his persona, but you know, his policies may be better than the other guy and, uh, or gal. And, and you know, Americans can make that decision just like the Brits can. And uh, I think they will if the Democrat isn't someone who, uh, you know, who, who they see as a pro-capitalism, uh, reasonable person. And, uh, and of course it's interesting, um, you know, the, the 800 pound gorilla in the wings is, is, uh, Mayor Bloomberg. And he's the, he's the reasonable alternative. <laughs> the problem is he's not very reasonable. A guy who not only will grab your gun, but isn't so sure you can order a big gulp at the local convenience store without his approval. Uh, this guy is not exactly, you know, the Mr. Mainstream. And uh, in fact, the only thing that Bloomberg has going for him in my book, and you have to remember uh, those of you who, who uh, remember years ago when he was mayor, he barely won a third term as mayor having spent millions. I believe he spent somewhere in excess of $100 million on his gubernator or gubernator mayoral campaign in new york and granted new york's an expensive city but it's a city he spent 138 dollars a vote to win barely against a guy who was underfunded who had almost no chance nobody ever thought he had a chance and and bloomberg barely beat him and the reason was is because bloomberg ran for office initially pledging to protect against the council that kept trying to get out of their term limits, that the liberal people of New York said, we love term limits. And then when they tried to get out, they voted again saying, no, we're keeping the term limits as they are. It's not a liberal or conservative issue. San Francisco, New York City, Washington DC has voted for them. 
almost every major city that's had a chance to vote for him has voted for him. And so do all the conservative places. People understand we need term votes. Well, well, Mayor Bloomberg, candidate Bloomberg said, I will, I not only support these term limits, I pledge to protect the city against the council's attempts to undo them because New York City's initiative process is stupidly drafted. The whole reason to have an initiative process is for people to say, hey, we're the boss, we understand you wanna run our lives, but it's America, citizens are in charge, we're going to do it our way. And to have the final word in New York City, even after you pass an initiative, the council has the final word and can rip it up and repeal it or change it any way they want with a simple majority vote. Outrageous, that should be changed. But of course, the, someone has to do it, and the council might rip that up. Uh, um, but Bloomberg pledged to be the guy who would stop that. Instead, Bloomberg was the guy, when it came time for him to be through with his two terms, to get the council and collude with them to get his third term. And the people of New York were so disgusted with him that even though he had all the money, he was running against the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial lamb nearly beat him in the election. So, so I don't like Mayor Bloomberg day one. That was even before he, you know, he was, uh, well, actually maybe it was after he did some of his other things, but uh, the, the uh, big gulp, you know, uh, hey, New Yorkers can't decide how much soda they drink. That's just way too much freedom. Um, he also was a stop and frisk guy. And, uh, you know, that's kind of seen as that's something a conservative would do. Well, Bloomberg's no conservative. And I don't know where conservatives are on that, but if conservatives are for that, that clearly is one of the places where I'm a libertarian and I, I separate from conservatives. Because if you have reason to suspect someone has committed a crime, yes, the police have probable cause and can and maybe should stop that person and, and take action. And if they don't find anything, of course, they would let that person go. But you better have probable cause. You can't just decide you don't like the way someone looks or they came from a part of town that you think is higher crime than another part of town, which the, the charge is always gets to be a racial uh, stop. We don't even have to get to the racism of it. It violates the First Amendment or the, the Fourth Amendment uh, protection against that type of search. And if you do it to one person, not just as a policy across the board, for heaven's sakes, you do it to one person, you should be called on the carpet. When you do it as a policy, that is outrageous. And that, that they were not uh, sued on that policy sooner and stopped sooner is, is a travesty. The other thing about Mr. Bloomberg is he's never come to grips and been honest about that. He's sort of said he's sorry about it and then made some comment about, boy, if, if I just would have known or something, well, of course he knew it was in the news and so on. He, he acted as if somehow he found out after the fact and boy, he would have, would have not wanted to do that if he would have known that there were problems with it. Well, he knew there were problems with it. So it's, uh, I'm not a big fan of Mr. Bloomberg. The interesting thing for me, if he ends up becoming, even gets into the fight um, and climbs to where he's the alternative to Sander uh, or whoever's on the liberal wing, or maybe maybe it's Buttigieg in him, but I think, I think you're gonna see someone on the liberal end and someone on the more moderate end. And of course, the more moderate end is about 70 zillion light years to the left of where it used to be. But anyway, 
Uh, but if you see that, you're going to see the ultimate billionaire candidate. And would the Democrats, the, the folks that have um, just made it to where, boy, if you're successful financially, something must be wrong with you. You know, we really ought to kind of punch you a couple times and steal some of your stuff right now, just to, just to begin the evening up process. It's, you know, it just reminds you of like the cultural revolution without the class, <laughs> you know, without the decency and <laughs> sentimentality. Um, no, it is. We, it's, it's dangerous for people to talk about successful people, the 1%, in the demonizing way that, that this country has as a society, you know, whatever the hell that means. But, but you know what it, it means. And you see it all the time. For us to talk about successful people that way, day after day after day for years, is a really dangerous, dangerous um, situation. And uh, and I think we ought to treat it more that way than we than we do. Of course, all week we were in and out of you know we had we had the State of the Union, uh, or well, first we we had Iowa, which was just an incredible debacle. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that when, when we get later in the week, we did the, the blue plate special. Uh, but we also had the State of the Union, which was one of the strangest State of the Unions uh, ever. And in my thinking, it, it was uh, everything I don't like about a State of the Union on steroids, even though I think Trump was very, very effective from a communication standpoint, doing it the way that really turned me off. Um, but, uh, but then also on Wednesday, you had his acquittal. And it was uh, a little bit funny. And I'm just skating all around. Then we'll go back here in a second to, to talk about ex-Californians. But, uh, but uh, um, when I woke up and looked at my Washington Post on Thursday morning, it said, Trump acquitted. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's the best headline Trump has ever gotten in the Washington Post. That was my first thought. And my wife commented on it as well that morning. And then, of course, later that day, Trump's holding it up, or not probably, I don't know what time the prayer breakfast was, but holding it up at the prayer breakfast. So it is, uh, as much as I thought, he took kind of a uh, gauche, uh, caddish, uh, insensitive, obnoxious, arrogant victory lap, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people uh, who were supporters liked because, you know, they'd had to take some stuff, but a, a bad idea. Victory laps are just really not that necessary. Celebrate in the clubhouse where no one sees you and everyone thinks that, you know, boy, did, was that person a good winner. Uh, that's not Trump, though. But anyway, it was interesting that he held that newspaper up in that way because that was actually the, the response I had to the headline is that's the best headline he's ever going to get in the Washington Post. So let's talk a little bit about ex-Californians. We talked about ex-Californians because there are people in Idaho and in, in uh, uh, Texas and other places who are a little bit concerned that there are too many people moving in from California. And they're concerned in that way that um, people are funny. We will sometimes not like where we are, which is, which is good. 
and I'm not good, but you know what I mean? If we realize we don't like it, that's a good thing because then we can change it. And we decide to move somewhere else where we think things are gonna be better. And oftentimes it's economic causes. We don't have a job maybe where we like. We like living here, but we don't have a job or any money. And that really undercuts the positives of a place I have found personally. And um, you know, each, each his own, but that's my, my read on those things. And so we move somewhere else where the economic opportunities are better. And then of course, we want to maybe change that new place where the economic opportunities are better to resemble the place we just moved from where the economic opportunities are not as good. And sometimes the people in those new places we've moved to think, now wait a second, I don't want my place to be like that place you just moved from that doesn't have any economic opportunity. So, Anyway, that's a legitimate concern for people. Uh, obviously, people have freedom of movement in our country and should, uh, but, but really interesting. And uh, one of our uh, fairly regular commenters, uh, Rick Rund, who, who uh, I've really enjoyed his comments, well, it turns out, he says, we are those ex-Californians of which you speak, uh, and, um, and, and points out that you know, it is a real problem in California that it's such a large state, which of course was one of the points we made, is it would be very legitimate to break up California if Californians want to do that. And, and it leads me to, at the end of the week, we actually had some stories in the paper. In fact, you sent me a, uh, a link to a story, and I had seen an earlier story on it a couple of weeks ago, but they had taken it even further, and that was... West Virginia's governor. There had been some counties in West Virginia inviting counties on the border in Virginia to join them. And of course, these counties left during the Civil War. And so that's how West Virginia got formed. And they're saying, hey, so, you know, some of your counties came very close to voting to move over then. Why don't you move over now? Well, here's the, the governor of West Virginia saying, hey, we welcome you to come over. Now, you know, I think it, for the most part, people, as as was said by Mr. Jefferson and his editors uh, at the Continental Congress, 1776, people are um, unlikely to change their circumstances unless there's really a serious problem with their circumstances. A lot of cost to changing to a new state or moving across the country or, heaven forbid, across the world. Uh, exciting, but a lot of costs involved, and so. You know, people don't change their circumstances. People don't revolt against the government the first time there's ever a problem. Uh, he was very right about that. But that could happen. And, and one of the things we have continually talked about um, is things like the state of Jefferson. Those are the northern counties. I think it's 19 counties or something, and maybe 16. I could be totally wrong. Don't, don't believe me. If you're writing a term paper, don't, don't cite me, please. Uh, and, and, but it's the counties in Northern California, which is a huge land area, and has the needs and the problems of a place where huge land, not that many people. But of course, it's governed completely without much representation, uh, at least that matters, because it's governed by people who live in San Diego, and LA, and San Francisco, and San Jose, and Sacramento, and you know, those are millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And it might want to leave. In fact, I think the people of that area would vote 
to leave California and form a different state. And of course, that has all the implications of U.S. senators and, and so on. Um, so in the same way that a lot of conservatives don't think, and I happen to agree with them, that Washington, D.C. should be its own separate state with two senators, uh, there may be some qualms when people say, well, that's going to be a conservative state because it's more rural, uh, at least presently, politically. And, uh, and, and so those two senators are going to be Republican senators. There may be all sorts of political negotiations that go on. However, at the base of it, if the people who live in the area that they call Jefferson, that's the new state they want, want to leave California and form their own state, if there is a solid majority of people and that's what they want, that's what they ought to get. If those counties on the border say, we wanna to move to West Virginia, and, and I think already with the gun laws and other things, uh, the folks, the Democrats in Richmond have gone too far. I don't want those counties to leave because I'm not in those counties. And then that makes the state, the state's gonna be more blue um, and less competitive. And so, uh, and, and truth is, whether it's red or blue, competitive is the best of all situations. And we've, we've written scripts through the years, as you'll recall, Tim, oftentimes pointing out to people that you think you're going to get lower spending Republicans because you elect a Republican president and a Republican Congress. The evidence is that is not going to be the case, that if you want less spending, you want a divided government, whether it's a Democrat in the White House or a Republican in the White House and a Democrat Democrat Congress, you're going to get less spending if they're split. And and my sense is historically, and it was just a sense. I could again, I could be wrong. Don't put this in your term paper. I think that the Democrat president and the Republican Congress probably the best situation was Clinton, even though they spent a lot more money than they should have spent. I mean, Clinton would kind of say, I want to spend this and Congress say, no, this, and then they negotiate and it would go higher. But because there was that, that kind of rough given, you know, pushback on both sides, the American people got a little bit less spending. And of course we, you know, Bill Gates and, and uh, Steve Jobs and about, seven zillion other people who worked their tail off during that decade uh, produced a lot of economic growth, which made, made all the mistakes Clinton and the Republican Congress were making less onerous to the rest of us. But, but the bottom line is this, it's when people talk about Hong Kong, um, the people of Hong Kong aren't saying we want to be separate and so on. Now, I think if they thought they could be, they'd vote for it in, in, in a Hong Kong minute. Uh, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying we want certain rights. But if they were saying that, if they were saying we want to be separate from China, we might all go, oh, China's very big and they've got an army and you don't. This is going to be very difficult. But they have every right to it. Every right to it. When Catalonia wants to break away from Spain, you might say, oh, the, and, and the truth is if there's election, I'm not sure that, that a majority of Catalonians would vote to separate from Spain. I think it'd be a close election. Might not be the situation in which I personally think, hey, this is a good move. But it's not up to me, it's not up to you unless you're a Catalonian. And it's in all of these situations, we should be consistent and we should let people have self-determination and then we should take that concept because it's the right concept just as far as we can take it. When when 
people look at, even when we've had conscription in our country, and look at how early on there was a certain respect in the law and in the execution of the law on, on conscription, on other things, for religious objectors, for where people realized this is a problem for this group of people. And we know that it is a heartfelt problem. And a, a, you know, they'll go to, to great lengths because they have a religious fervor that this is the right thing to do. That's not someone you want to aggress against. We, it, that's what respect is all about. We argue these days about whether, you know, somebody's shooting off their mouth with a bunch of four-letter words and so on on some Facebook post, you know, shouldn't get a little bit better about, you know, the way they're talking. That's the small stuff. The big stuff is policies, where if you don't do what you're told to do or what the law is, they come get you and they have guns and stuff. And, and you know, Eric Gardner, the, the, the guy who's often cited uh, because he was selling cigarettes by the cigarette in New York City, of course, because cigarettes are so expensive. There's a law against that. And the police were arresting him. And he did sort of resist in that he wasn't really going along. He was a big guy and so on. They did a chokehold. They shouldn't have done a chokehold. Not, I mean, the police should have done better. But why, are, why did we create this conflict to begin with? Why are there police in New York City, several of them, a bunch of them? The money they spent just to be there for the time it took for them to wrestle him and then kill him. I don't think they wanted to kill him, but they killed him. Why is that? Why are we? Because it's we who have allowed it to happen at the very least. Not to blame the wrong people. We didn't make it happen, but we allowed it to. Why are we so shocked? Why are we, why are we so sure that we can fine-tune the police enough that they wouldn't use too much force in any situation so that we can go and try to, you know, pass laws about whether someone's selling a cigarette to someone else on the street? Less laws more understanding of our limits, more respect for other people and their views that are just sometimes different than our views. And that doesn't, no one's arguing for let evil things happen to people, let people do harm to other people. But, uh, but you know, it, it starts in understanding political rights. And I think, I think that self-determination uh, we should take it just as far as we can go in every direction. So, but instead, maybe we should take what's really been taken as far as it can go in every direction, Tim. <clears throat> and that is nepotism. Nepotism today, nepotism tomorrow, nepotism forever. And, and I don't know how much, frankly, uh, and usually I, you know, I think I'm smart, so I think I have some idea of, how some story affected uh, the political voting and, you know, the voting in Iowa. How much did the impeachment and all this talk about Hunter Biden and Biden and, and Ukraine, how much did that hurt Biden? And I really don't have any sense of that. Um, partly because Biden is not a good candidate. And you think about, you know, Trump said something that could be true. He said, uh, I think Joe has lost his fastball. 
But the problem is that might not be quite true. And of course, if there were a fact check, Trump would get lie, you know, for this. But I'm not sure Joe ever had his fastball. And so if he didn't have a fastball, he couldn't have lost it. And that's another lie by Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States. So it's, uh, uh, you know, I do think it hurt uh, in the same way that uh, after the election in 2016, I remember Chuck Todd, uh, not my favorite newsman, um, who admitted that the media missed how unpopular Hillary Clinton was and how much people didn't trust her. And you think about, you know, you got all these polls. I'll bet Chuck Todd had access to more polling than I had. I knew that. And I didn't just knew it because I felt it instinctively myself, because I'm a somewhat normal person, but because I saw it in the polling. I saw it very strongly in the polling. And, uh, and so how did he miss it? And how did the entire media corps miss it? Well, I think they missed it because they're creating a narrative for the rest of us to live in. And that wasn't part of the narrative. It didn't fit the narrative. And it is possible, like if there's a major disease like the coronavirus or something else that takes over the world or an asteroid hits us or something, that will push, you know, gun control off the, off the front page or some, whatever the issue du jour is of the national media narrative creators. Um, but they, they like to create a narrative. And uh, anyway, they, they, uh, when, when you look at this whole thing with, with impeachment and Biden, part of the narrative in the media has been there's no evidence that Biden has, has done it, that, that this has been, this whole story has been debunked. And of course, Lindsey Graham, not my favorite senator, uh, said at one point, who debunked it? What's happened is that the media basically said it didn't exist. And so it's never really looked into it. Now, <clears throat> it is true that there is no smoking gun that uh, some court said he did this or that there was an investigation and they found a tape that had him saying, yes, this was a payoff. But at the very least, Hunter Biden earning more than a million dollars from an oil company, an energy company in the Ukraine that was thought to be by our deep state experts, probably all 17 or I don't know, we may have 1700 you know, deep state intelligence agencies today. And they all you know, looked at that and said, this is a corrupt company. Hunter Biden goes to work for them, knowing nothing about the issue at hand, which is energy and is making more than a million dollars. His father as vice president is running, the, the, is the main policy guy for the Obama administration on Ukraine. That is a problem. And the problem isn't Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, maybe we missed it. And he went in, he just said, look, I'm gonna take a shot. That's how life is about. I'm gonna take a shot. I'm going to go and I'm going to interview. I'm going to find a way to get into Burisma. And man, I am going to so wow them in the interview that they just say, this guy, I mean, look, there was oil before, but now there's Hunter Biden. And we are, we got to get this guy. We get this guy. The sky's the limit. So he goes in, he wows them in the interview. And they say, look, 
you know, we kind of look at this with him and the vice president. That's a little dicey. But we can't give up his expertise. This is the, this is this guy leads us to the future. And so they give the job to Hunter Biden. Well, he has every right to take that job. Every right. Let's not stand in the way of people for some political motivation. And so what do you do? Simple. Mr. Obama, the Obama administration realizes, <clears throat> realizes the problem. Because if, if you're talking about corruption, if you believe in campaign finance reform, like all these guys spout out, then you know that this is a huge conflict of interest. You recognize that right off the bat. Anybody would, a two-year-old would. If you don't, something's wrong with you and you ought not to be involved in any ethics legislation or anything else. So you know this is a problem and you say simply to not Hunter because Hunter doesn't work for you. Hunter doesn't work for us, the American people. Joe does. This is Joe's failing. And this is Obama's failing as the chief of executive. Hunter Biden may have done all kinds of wrong things from, you know, not paying child support to some kitty fathered in, in Arkansas to drugs and everything else, which I don't think should be a crime. Probably wasn't a good idea for him personally, but whatever Hunter did, whatever type of person he is, this is not his problem. This is our problem, and this is Joe Biden's problem. Joe Biden should have said, Mr. President, I'm sorry to inform you, but my son has taken a great job offer he got from Burisma, and I'm so excited for him personally, but I recognize we cannot have me running Ukrainian policy, being the point man, if my son works for this big oil company owned by an oligarch <clears throat> in the Ukraine. So that should have been, and if he didn't do that, Obama should have stepped in and said, it's my duty to step in and say, Joe, let's find you something else you can do. You can't be the point person. Now, our commentary wasn't <laughs> on Hunter Biden. It was on Chelsea Clinton. Because um, while all of what I said, I think is important, maybe we need to write one on that, Tim. I should scribble those, get those notes, would you? Um, but, but anyway, um, but we made the point that there's all this focus there. But here's another thing, and this, it doesn't have quite the same conflict of interest, but it still has a conflict of interest. And in the sense that it's more subtle, people might miss it. Uh, Hillary Clinton is, has had all these corporate board positions. And of course, it's been said that she's made all this money as if they're paying her millions, uh, that she made $9 million from corporate board position in the last few years. And she made all that money from NBC for a role that just didn't seem to really justify that money. But that's, look, they're free to do what they want to do. But there is a conflict of interest there. If then NBC is covering Hillary Clinton, it's to me that there's, they have a problem. It, it, they either look like they are too nice because they have this entangling relationship with her daughter, or maybe they're being too tough to try to look like they don't have that entangling relationship. It seems to me to be fraught with danger, and yet, boy, they wrote a big check for someone who really never was into television, it didn't seem, and, and, 
and not that she was terrible because she wasn't terrible, but she wasn't really very good either. I mean, this, it was just clear, this isn't what she wants to do. This isn't how she sees herself. This isn't her career path. She got a bunch of money from NBC. Um, and she's gotten a lot of money on these boards. And, and maybe again, maybe she's a lot better at this than we think. Um, and again, it's not our money. It's not public money. But you, you have to look at this society. We started talking about all the 1% and, you know, where we constantly are bashing people who have money. But almost everybody I know who has money, and frankly, you know, I'm, I'm getting to an age in which I realize, you know, when I was younger, I, I kind of would say, well, I don't think I'm ever going to be rich, but it could have happened. You know, I still had that hope in the back of my head that, you know, I'd stumble and fall down and, and there'd be a lottery ticket or something, you know, I'd Willy Wonka would bring me to his, his factory, you know, and I'd be the nicest guy. A anyway, it, it, it's always possible. Well, I'm getting to the age where, I'm starting to kind of doubt that I'm going to become a, just a multi-billionaire. My whole experience with people who have money is that, of course, there's going to be a certain percentage who are jerks, just like there's a certain percentage of almost any demographic group you can find that are jerks. And, and the, the funny thing is we might disagree about who the jerks are. That's how crazy this world is. But by and large, out of all the demographic groups I know, Wealthy people are harder working, more community conscious, more focused. They're focused on what they're doing and they get things done. And the nicest people you would ever want to bump into. And so I, I just think when I hear all this anti-rich people stuff, it really makes me mad. It really, it, it's, and, and as we talked about earlier, it's dangerous. But, but what is the situation? I mean, where would these people be right to kind of say, look, it's not fair that this person has all this wealth? Well, if someone goes and works their tail off, it's fair that they make more money than the person who didn't. That's just fair. Sometimes people talk about the tax code. Oh, if they don't pay their, pay their fair share. I've always thought, let's not talk about fair shares, because if we do that, rich people are going to pay less, and you and I are going to have to pay more. Where it is unfair that people make a bunch of money is when they use our resources that they don't really have a right to, and their position in our government to get connections and do different things. Years ago, uh, uh, when, when uh, Tom Daschle from South Dakota was the Senate Majority Leader, Democrat, his wife was the chief lobbyist for American Airlines and for other groups. And of course said, look, I don't lobby my husband. But is there not just a little <laughs> bit of problem that you're gonna, I mean, look, if I have a big company and I'm worried that regulation is a big deal in my industry, I'd sure like to hire the wife of the Senate president. Um, these, and, and frankly, we can't have every law that, that, oh, if you're related, if you're the third cousin of some, you know, politician, you don't, you have to be on welfare the whole time they're in office. That's not going to work either. <laughs> What, what does work is to stop having government make 
the decisions about who's a winner and who's a loser. We know some of these things are wrong. We know when you give $500 million to Solyndra to do, you know, uh, uh, solar panels or whatever. Look, if solar, solar panels make sense, then let someone do it in the marketplace. Don't subsidize it. We in this country, think of how crazy people are about football or basketball or whatever. They're nuts. I know I'm one of them. I'm nuts. We're willing to spend money. Why on earth? Would people who are not into that be forced to spend money so that I can do something like that? That is just insane. And we do it all over the country. It's gotten to the point where now any major billionaire who owns a sports team is an idiot if he would even think about building that stadium himself. My goodness, that's a cost of doing business. You just put on the taxpayers. That, you know... This is the sort of thing that, that it's crony capitalism. It's not capitalism. It's crony capitalism. It's mercantilism. That is the very thing when, when our ancestors, I don't know if I'm actually, they're actually my ancestors, but somebody's ancestors and they were darn good people, threw that tea into the harbor. They didn't throw the tea into the harbor because it was expensive from taxes. They threw the tea in the harbor because the jerk legislators in the parliament in Great Britain wanted to force the Americans to buy that tea. They wanted to create this market that didn't have a choice to get their tea from somewhere else and had to get it from the East India Company because the East India Company had their ends with the parliament in the same way that too often we're doing business today. The American Revolution was a revolt against mercantilism, against crony capitalism, against what is too often at work all over our country. When you have places where you, if you want to go into business as a moving company and you have to get the permission of other moving companies, does that sound like a free market? Does that sound like capitalism? In the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, used to be that occasionally, uh, you know, if you were a doctor, you had to be a licensed doctor. Now you can't, you know, you have to be a licensed to do cornrowing of, of hair. Of course, white folks controlling the, you know, the, the legislatures, we've passed all the laws that barbers have to do this and this because the barbers went to the, the legislature and said, hey, why don't we make it tough for anybody to compete with me so that I can charge a little bit higher rates? And then lo and behold, people are going to folks who actually know how to do their hair and getting it cornrowed and, 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 oh, well, we can't let that happen. They've got to go to the same barber college. But of course, that barber college doesn't know how to do it. So they have to spend money to learn how to do stuff they don't want to do and not learn anything they do want to do. Why? Because it's not about safety. I mean, that's the funniest thing. It's always, this is about health and safety. You know, there's nothing dangerous about a bad haircut. It may really stink for a few days or a few weeks until your hair grows back. Nothing dangerous. There's no public health and safety that is implicated. And yet, this is the way our economy runs. And this is the way I think folks in government want it to run. Because it's the way they have the most power. And it's why people going to Congress go not wealthy, 
and after a few terms are wealthy. They become great stock pickers because of course they know what's happening in the economy because they're making a lot of the bad things happen or not doing things and, and they know what they're gonna do or not do. They have a better read than you and I do. And, uh, and that's been shown again and again. I mean, incredible. Nobody picks stocks as well as congressmen. And they control way too much of the economy. And that's what Chelsea Clinton's doing is a little bit different, but it is illuminating the way too much of our economy has become. And it's all politics and it's gotta stop. And of course that leads us to Thursday and the blue plate special, the uh, trifecta. And basically we pointed out what everyone of course already saw, we didn't have to point it out, which was, my goodness, we've got, you know, the Democratic Party, their first go round in a critical election and they are lost. They have some app that's going to run their whole thing and uh, apparently didn't test it or whatever. I mean, what kind of idiot did they hire? Well, they hired someone who used to work for Hillary Clinton. And there was all kinds of problems in 2016 between Bernie and Hillary in Iowa and the way that was run. No question that the DNC was pro-Hillary, anti-Sanders, and that it had an impact in that race, not just from superdelegates, which are still there. Now they don't, they don't get to vote however they want until the second ballot. But the Democrats still have a bunch of superdelegates. It's, it's kind of like saying, we know it's wrong to have a king, so the king's only going to have so much power. <laughs> so um, there was that, which is a huge problem. And then, of course, there was the, the fact that the media seems to, it's one thing for the Democratic Party to say, oh, my goodness, we cannot run a socialist. We cannot, we're going to lose. But for the media to say, oh, my goodness, Democrats, you cannot run a socialist because if you do, you're going to lose. I mean, we're going to lose. I mean, you're going to lose. I didn't, didn't we say we. And we saw, we've already seen the media treat Tulsi Gabbard, who is for peace. That is not allowed. If you are against regime change wars, the media, pretty universally at the national level, is going to be against you. But this is the media against the front runner, Sanders, uh, and I think the clear front runner at this point. Now, Buttigieg is, is uh, who I've been afraid of the whole time because he seems to love national service and, and uh, is, you know, is certainly comes from a family that his father was like a, a scholar on communist Marxist thinking and so on. Uh, and he's, he loves the deep state. He's a big CIA guy and so on. But I, I think if you look over nationally, and, and maybe Buttigieg comes up, but right now Sanders is the front runner. And the media just constantly not covering him uh, as a front runner. It's interesting that in essence now there's a big freak out by not only the higher ups in the Democratic Party, but apparently also in the media. And as a lot of talk show hosts I know say, the same thing. But they are concerned about a socialist running. And we, we kind of raised the point, my goodness, you've been pushing all of these socialistic ideas. 
you 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 know the truth is the media i think is to the left of the of the center of the democratic party it may not be to the left of the leftist most democrat but it's close there and so in essence they've been beating up on the rich and creating class warfare and pushing socialism and oh this isn't really socialism but with the realization that the public doesn't want what they're selling at least to a certain degree and and so all of a sudden after pushing all this oh my goodness we might get a candidate offering to really give people what we've been in in essence promoting as the best way for the country to go uh, the country doesn't want to go that way, and I think it's a it's a recognition of that. And of course, it it I think leads us to uh, our Friday commentary, because in in essence, the country didn't want to go to impeachment either. And on on Friday, impeachment impeachments are forever. We really picked up on the fact that. Uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, came out and said, this impeachment is forever. It's a stain on Mr. Trump. And yet, I, I'm not so sure it is a stain on Mr. Trump in the sense that the public, his, his approval ratings are at their highest. I believe he's at his highest all-time approval rating after the days after all of this impeachment. And I have to say, um, I was a younger man then in the 90s when Bill Clinton was impeached. Uh, Democrats certainly fought term limits. Uh, Republicans kind of embraced it and then in the back room tried to strangle it to death. Um, uh, and, and during all of that, I really, you know, I wasn't a big warrior for impeachment, but I kind of thought, you know, he did lie under oath and so on. And, and I didn't have a real problem with it either. I look back now and I think he did lie under oath. That's a real crime. And, uh, but I just don't know that it would have helped the country had he been impeached. Um, and I feel the same way about uh, the Trump impeachment, that a, a little different in that I don't think there would have been the lasting scar from Clinton that there would be here, because this in many ways, I think is, is for a segment of the population, their first and only president. And I think the, the opposition from the media and from the left has been so strong all along that you would have a segment uh, of, the, of the public that if he were impeached and removed from office would say, why vote? We, we're, you know, we can't win. And, uh, and of course, I think, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not as sympathetic to that segment uh, that maybe the same thing would have happened with Clinton, but I will say this. I am now uh, think that the impeachment of Bill Clinton was a mistake, and um, not, not, I'm not talking about a political mistake. Was a, a real mistake. We have we have to differentiate that because it could be that it was the right thing to do, but politically not wise. It could be that impeaching Trump was the right thing to do, but politically unwise. But I think you have to you have to calculate: is this going to help my country or not? Is this going to help us be better in the future or not? And if you think the answer is not, you don't have to, you know, just like a, a policeman can let somebody go if they think that, that you know, busting them for that jaywalking just isn't going to help society. Um, and I think it's the same, same thing here. I mean, I'm not saying it's jaywalking. That's just the, the crime that came to mind. 
but but uh, in in any of these cases, we do have to make these judgment calls. Um, but I think it also shows where our government is that here we we get through with impeachment, and the Democrats, the the Republicans. Well, first of all, the Democrats are talking about what a stain it is, and they're still fighting it. Trump, and I have to admit that a few of his snide, obnoxious comments were sort of funny. Uh, but what is he doing? You know, going to have a big to do, and let's just keep all this fomenting. It, it doesn't make sense. And then, of course, it comes out that the Republicans, if they take the House, and I think that the Democrats may have have misdialed their impeachment in such a way that the public will throw them out and Republicans take the House, they're going to expunge the impeachment, which means we're back into it all. And then, of course, there was some talk that if Democrats keep the House, that they would come with a new impeachment against the president. They're, you know, you could say they don't get it. They don't want to get it. They're not listening to us. They don't intend to listen to us. And if this isn't just an indictment of the whole shebang, I don't know what is. So what do we do? And there's, you know, I don't, uh, in the next five minutes, I'm not going to give this the solution. I'm, I'm keeping it secret. The magic solution that just solves <laughs> all the world's problems. But on Friday, we talked about the impeachment process and recognized that, there, <clears throat> granted, there's only been three impeachments in history. Andrew Johnson, who was a Democrat in, with Republicans in control of both houses, he took over for Lincoln, who was assassinated. He was sympathetic to the South in some ways, and there was all kinds of, uh, you know, very nasty things going on underneath the surface and, and maybe above the surface. And he was saved from conviction by one vote, but he did not receive a single vote of his own party saying in the Senate to convict him. And Bill Clinton, uh, in 1999, when he was impeached, the Republicans voted for impeachment, just about every one of them, but not a single Democrat in the Senate voted for impeachment. And so when you think about looking at this, excuse me, this uh, impeachment process we just had, which I think everyone would say, oh my goodness, it couldn't possibly get any more partisan than what we just had. 100% partisan in the House. Well, I shouldn't say 100%. Not a single Republican voting to convict him for impeachment. You did have uh, Amash leave the Republican Party, become an independent, and vote for that. And you had a couple of Democrats who didn't vote for impeachment, but pretty much completely partisan. And then in the Senate, you had Mitt Romney being the only Republican to vote for conviction on the first count, not the second count. And of course, we pointed out, for what it's worth, that Mitt Romney is, is Mr. Flip-Flop. So the idea that somehow from principle, he stood on principle, you know, Utah is a red state, can't stand uh, Trump. Uh, I don't think this cost him anything. Utah has, has uh, uh, you know, he won Utah, but there was a third party candidate that I believe got 20% of the vote. So uh, Utah is not a bastion of Trump support. This did not cost Mitt Romney 
like it would have cost other people because of the demographics and the and the opinions of the state. But Mitt Romney has has not had a career of principle. He's had a career of what do the polls say I should do and say, okay, I'll go do and say it as well as any CEO you could hire. And then, um, uh, you know, in, in essence, so you, you have impeachment now, one Republican votes against his party's president, and that's the first ever in history. And so, of course, we've got this process that, to me, as I pointed out, I think makes a lot of sense. I mean, it is a good process to have some way to remove a president. And of course, when the Constitution was written, it wasn't like we were going to have the sort of petition recall process and then put the guy's name on the ballot as we have in a number of states and local areas where you can recall your mayor or your city council member or your, or your governor, uh, as they did in California years ago. And it's been my experience that there are times where a official who really, really deserves to be recalled is not recalled. I'm not aware of any case in the history of the country that a person who didn't deserve to be recalled was recalled. Now, I, I could be wrong, and I encourage anybody to, to leave any cases that we should look into, but when people uh, deserve recall, they aren't often recalled. And uh, when they are, boy, do they deserve it. And we need that sort of process. And if you look at impeachment, it isn't that sort of process. It's a way for partisan hacks to make mischief. Um, it's also a way for guilty people to get away with whatever they want to get away with because they have enough votes in the Congress to get away with it. We need a process where the citizens could say, no, you're out. And it doesn't matter what the partisan makeup is. So um, again, this is, this is desperately needed at all levels of government. It's not at all partisan. It's citizen-based. And, and I'll tell you, it, it, my biggest fear is that if Trump is defeated in 2020, that so many people who have gotten engaged in the process against him, will say problem solved and go back to their daily lives and not think about, which I don't think they've th thought about. So many people I think who are opposed to Trump are fixated on Trump. Almost every problem we have, even if it's a problem that Trump, Trump is exacerbating, is, was a problem before. When you think of, I think, what has made people the most livid, and, and maybe myself too, is some of the things in terms of immigration and at the border and kids in cages and so on. And Obama was doing that. And some of the raids that, and, and not that you couldn't raid, there's a law written, there's a process for, the, for us to get that law undone. I recognize that, that the law says they can go and have raids and arrest people who aren't, aren't documented. But I think you have to do these things, again, in a way that respects other people's human rights. I think we need a policy that makes some sense instead of a stupid policy. In other words, almost everything that's happening is one side trying to score political points and the other side trying to score political points and using the, both the DACA kids, 
some of whom are, you know, as old as we are. Uh, and the anti-immigration people who are concerned that the hordes are taking over our country, both of those groups are being played. And they're being played for other people's political gain. That's how the whole system works. That's why our economy can't be a free market economy because they're too busy playing us for certain people to win at our expense and, and across the board. And I think what we learned this week is that they aren't tired of impeachment. Neither side is tired of the BS. You know, Trump, I don't, you know, I've never in my life liked people using obnoxious language. Sometimes you walk into a, uh, you know, a 7-Eleven or something and someone is talking using filthy language. I hate that. I hate that. Um, I don't like our society being coarsened, and I'm not, I don't consider myself a prude, but I just don't like people using bad language. But the President of the United States, I think for the first time, on openly said BS, with all the letters and all the sounds put together. And I think that actually connected with a large number of Americans. It would have connected with Americans against Trump, except Trump said it, because that's what our government has become at just about every level, especially in Washington. The problem is when Trump said that, I don't think he's committed to ending that. And we know darn good and well on both sides of the aisle in the Congress, they are committed to keeping it going. And, and you can argue if you're a Republican, hey, we didn't bring this. But I think I'm arguing that if things had been reversed, you sure as heck might have brought it. And the Democrats are going to keep pushing this. And the Republicans are going to keep pushing this. And it just is... It, again, what it suggests is we've got to do stuff outside of elect somebody who's going to take us home. You know, I, I, I constantly think I want the troops to come home. I want to, nobody's going to do this for us. Nobody's going to do it for us. And so uh, we, we end another week, Tim, knowing that we need a movement beyond the movements we have. And uh, I see stuff, great stuff happen at the grassroots all the time. Uh, but it, it, uh, it needs to be built into a national movement that can transcend some of the ridiculous partisanship and that has respect for basic freedoms. And, and you know, that, that I think uh, is possible, but, uh, but we need a movement like that. It's not, gonna, it's not gonna come out of the Republican and Democratic parties. I think that is pretty darn obvious. Well, that's certainly a good place to stop and uh, sign off for the weekend. Though I do think that maybe, maybe you should uh, explain what the Republicans are doing to keep impeachment going by trying to annul it, basically. What they, what they call it? Uh, expunge yes, expunge it? it. Expunge it. Like sometimes, you know, if you're a kid, you get convicted of something and you, you know, they expunge your record if you don't, especially driving records, this was the way, uh, but also with other sometimes minor crimes minor possession of alcohol, something like that, they'll expunge it from your record uh, or traffic ticket if you don't get another ticket in a certain period of time. So if, if, if Republicans win the House, they've said they're going to go expunge Trump's record. It's just too much. And they think that they're fighting over, you know, who has some 
right to brag or whatever, but the American people are so sick and tired of all these folks. There's no right to brag to anybody. Anyway, it's just, it, the, the lack of vision is blinding. Thank you for joining us for This Week in Common Sense. I'm Timothy Perkala. You can reach me at, at Workman. That's Workman with an I, not an O, on social media. And Paul Jacob can be found at thisiscommonsense.com and on the weekends on SoundCloud and YouTube.